Today in the garage, we have Nadia Leva. Nadia is committed to providing her clients with trusted counsel and skilled representation. A lawyer with over 28 years of experience in criminal, regulatory, and administrative law, Nadia's practice is quality-driven and is focused on achieving the best results for her clients. Her practice can be defined in one word, integrity. Today we discussed ethical lawyering and dealing with the law society. Whether you're driving your new AMG 63, playing your ukulele, or preparing your joint ASF. Let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get it tuned. Welcome, Nadia. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Paul. I'm really delighted to have you here because our audience is going to experience the good wisdom that you can share with them about what ethical lawyering is. I'll do my best. So give us some good advice for lawyers out there, not only those that are practicing and of my vintage, but even for those young lawyers that are just starting out or students who are thinking of becoming lawyers. So in regards to ethical lawyering, which is sort of the the topic that you had given me on this, I think the way I look at it is I try to practice as if the law society is in the room with me. So from the very first intake phone call, I pretend the law society is listening in on the call. So things such as ensuring confidentiality is understood by the person who's calling me, making sure they understand that whatever they say to me because they're seeking a consult is said within the bounds of solicitor client privilege and getting information about them will be protected. So that's as if the law society were behind me and the kind of language I use and and the way I represent myself in that phone call I make no guarantees. I try to not, you know, I I try to make it clear that, you know, going to a lawyer is like going to a doctor, the old Bill Trudell line, um, that it's your choice. You need to feel comfortable with the person that you're hiring. And I always put that out there in the first phone call because that gives uh, a client a sense of choice, a sense of control over a situation where they're already feeling things are going out of control for the most part. Um, And then when I have a file, I keep in mind that if there's ever a complaint, what is in my file that can prove that I've done my job correctly? So retainer agreements, they set out what my fees are, what my expectations of the client are, whether it's a criminal file or whether I'm dealing with a lawyer or a paralegal, I make sure it's clear that my client, it's just because I'm carrying the problem doesn't mean my client's job's not over. Um, They still have to give me information. If they wait to the last minute, then I can't get my job done. Everything you're telling us is really summed up in a single word. It's professionalism. And when you talk about practicing in a way where you document things, that's you as professional. When you talk about dealing with the client and building the relationship with them so that there's trust, that's professional. And, and, And it's such an important factor to hit home for everybody who's listening. So when you're dealing with your files, and we just talked about a retainer agreement, the other things too, and and it sounds trite, date your file notes. Um, Make sure that you have instructions, whether they're, if they're given to you verbally, make notes of them. If they're important instructions, have them written out, have your client sign them, put them in the file. 
keep dockets so that it just doesn't say went to court, went to court, had a pretrial, because you don't know if in a year or two, someone's going to be saying, were you in fact in court and did you have a pretrial on that date? So your file is your memory, because let's face it, we all take on hundreds of clients throughout our careers. The more you practice, the more time goes by and the harder it will be to remember those little details on that file you had six years ago. So keeping notes, you know, and I, I became a criminal lawyer thinking I'd never have to deal with paper, but my files are completely papered now. Um, I make sure if I have a client interview, I, I put the start time of the interview, who's present in the interview. I put the end time in the interview notes. That way I can justify my dockets. Um, so if the Law Society ever calls upon my files, and they do, when you have a letter of complaint, they normally ask for your client file. And the Law Society is a depository of all solicitor client privilege. So you can't say to them, well, no, 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 it's covered by solicitor client privilege, Law Society. I don't have to give you my file. No, in fact, you do. And so recognizing that the Law Society could one day go through your file, you talk about professionalism, you talk about ethical um, considerations, your file, always look at it as if, if the Law Society grabbed a hold of this off my desk today, what would they say about it? And I think that makes for better file management. It makes for better record keeping. It prepares you if there ever is a complaint to have the best record possible to defend yourself. Um, and it also allows you, if your client calls you five years later to pull your file and help them remember what happened. Um, because again, our memories will change with time, fade with the number of files that we, we take on. And so having a good file is important. Having just your disclosure in a file folder is not enough. When you talk about memory, I try to, I try to think back uh, to university and law school and uh, people may not know this, but both of us were in bar ad phase one together in London. Um, I didn't really know how to practice and I was scared. Um, and I know that part of my trajectory was helped by friends, uh, including you, uh, where I get a case and I would be able to pick up and talk to another lawyer, my same vintage, um, and, and work through files or to be introduced to mentors. And it's a, a great way of learning how to properly practice so that you continue to be on the ethical side of lawyering and you learn what integrity is and how wonderful your reputation builds because of it. Yeah, I think those relationships are, are, are critical to the building of your practice. Um, I, I seem to recall you and I had a case, I think it was a robbery case out in the East Mall as it then was. Um, and recognizing that someone was struggling um, as much as I was and or someone had a different idea and just being able to speak about a case together was really integral. But then, you know, as we both were practicing and we had issues to be able to call someone of my own vintage up and say, look, I'm struggling with this. Or if you called me up and you were struggling and one of us didn't have the answer, we both had associations with other lawyers, some of whom were more senior to us where we could take the problem and say, look, a colleague of mine is having this issue. We need some guidance. Can you help us? And so we both ended up building 
different relationships with mentors, not only ourselves, but through each other. And, and thereby my mentor became your mentor and your mentor became mine. And then we just sort of created this community over time. And, and it wasn't even intentional and in, like, it wasn't something that I, we, we had thought about in advance. It just sort of happened because we cared enough not to make mistakes. And I think if you practice with that at heart, the, the desire not to be reckless, the desire to be careful um, and to reach out and not be afraid of not knowing the answer to something, uh, not being so prideful that you're afraid to ask or you just don't want to ask. Um, I think you end up getting a much better practice. I think you give better service and I think your reputation only improves because of it. And I think that in the criminal bar, people, uh, that practice law, whether they're in criminal or other areas, recognize that this is a unique feature about being in the bar, but it's available for every area of the bar. We just have to create that culture. It helps improve at the end of the day, not only the way we practice, but the way we're able to assist in bringing access to justice. And I know that you've transitioned uh, from a full-time criminal lawyer to including your practice, those integrity areas of practice where you help other lawyers when they're in trouble. Yeah, I, I, um, I just wanted to go back one step though, Paul, aside from our own bar, the criminal bar, and, and there are places such as, you know, when we actually can see each other and meet each other, um, such as your programs and, and the criminal lawyers association, the law society also offers a mentorship program. And I urge lawyer, young lawyers in particular, to get involved in programs. If you're working, you know, and we may all end up working out of our homes for a while, but, you know, getting involved in organizations, even attending workshops, you, you can meet one person even, and that one person is one more person within your practice to, to throw ideas with. Or you use a mentorship program and you talk to somebody over the phone. I am constantly taking calls from people asking questions about ethical issues, um, I will often open a file and never speak to somebody again. Like we'll have a, a two hour conversation about a problem they're having on a case. I take notes and um, I never hear from them again. But the idea is they're getting advice. They're having senior counsel available to them. Um, sadly, Paul, you and I have practiced for 29 years. And because of that, I got enough gray hair to finally start representing lawyers with some credibility, I guess. And uh, now my practice is almost 90% defending lawyers and paralegals at the Law Society or representing them at the Law Society. Um, and it, it's been an honor to sort of stand by my colleagues as opposed to just standing by um, clients in a criminal court. And um, I've taken a lot of enjoyment, but I, I have to say the issues are challenging. Um, I often see myself in the problems that are being presented because you know they're but for the grace of somebody else go I and uh, we're under a lot of pressure these days um, and I think that lawyers are the last people that are recognized as being vulnerable and I am hopeful that we are able to engage in dialogues with our regulator where our vulnerabilities are recognized and as opposed to being told that we failed 
um, just recognize that we needed help. And part of the responsibility is on us to recognize when we need help, but also part of the responsibility is on our regular, on our regulator, I believe, to make assistance available, make it easier to come forward when we need help. And while we do have the members assistance program, I do feel, and this is my own opinion, that we could do a better job as a profession at uh, addressing capacity issues in an accommodation format and in a supportive format so that we can better serve the public, which is ultimately the Law Society's mandate. And let me just add to that, if I may. Um, let's not forget about articling students or students in law school. Um, I know the membership assistance program is available to them. And in addition, I, I'm gonna throw a shout out uh, to uh, a young uh, lawyer at the bar who uh, during her articles uh, thought that it would be a great idea to create a uh, session and uh, a communication between other articling students. And she created uh, a, a means in which uh, numerous articling students across uh, Toronto and Ontario could get together once a week and have a coffee chat to discuss what was going on to ensure that everybody was doing okay. She now works with Peter Lindsay, her name's Hamna Anwar, and uh, is, is a very good lawyer. And it's those kind of things when we're here to help clients, we also are here to help our colleagues. Yeah, I, I, I mean, kudos on such a great program for people to be able to get a hold of each other, especially in these days. Um, I think that's integral. It's, it's not so different than what we used to do in, in, in the lawyers' lounges, right? You'd see the, the, the most scared people in the room are, were usually your cohort when you were starting off, and you would be asking them questions, and some more senior counsel would overhear a question and, and, and shout out and, and, and assist um, at times. And I, I would encourage articling students that during that, those kinds of programs or those time, kinds of coffee chats to also reach out to senior counsel though, as well as they may be able to bring in some additional ideas um, and supports. We're all here for each other. I mean, that's the only way, quite frankly, um, that, this is, that this becomes a lot of fun um, because we have short stories that we can only really truly share amongst ourselves because nobody understands our sense of humor um, for the most part outside of the criminal bar. And it, it just, it makes a more, a richer practice. And I think you serve your clients better when there's another, there's other input um, for sure. So let's talk about uh, what advice you have for those if uh, the Law Society comes a knocking. Well, you know, I think the best advice I can give you is make sure you're ready for them to come knocking, which is why I say to you, practice as if the Law Society is over your shoulders, have your files ready so that if they ask for something, they're there. Um, if the Law Society does contact you, they always give you a deadline within which to respond. The reason they give the deadline is so that they know someone has received their correspondence and that someone is going to respond. If you don't respond at all, uh, the Law Society will start proceedings because you're failing to cooperate um, and they can quickly move uh, on a summary hearing and suspend your license for at least a month until you start cooperating. Quite often we're busy in the middle of trials though, and a three week deadline 
flies by, especially if you're in the middle of a whole bunch of stuff. So all I suggest is you contact the law society and say, look, I'm, I, I recognize this is important. I have a number of clients I am serving. I need some more time. This is a realistic time frame within which I think I can respond to you. And I think then you're engaged with the regulator. They're just worried that people are going to ignore them. So I think if you engage, don't wait till the night before when you get a letter of complaint, try to do it sooner than later. If things come up, they come up and just, you know, explain, um, you know, you've got to balance making yourself sound like your, your practice is completely out of control because you are speaking to your regulator, but just being realistic about what you can do. Um, if you're not sure when you get a complaint from the Law Society of how serious it is, you can call somebody that does this kind of work. You know, all you have to do is look at the ORs. You see those of us that do this pretty regularly and ask them, um, you know, how serious is this kind of an issue? Do I need counsel? Um, and, you know, you'll get guidance. Uh, the one thing that I have to sell is my reputation. I think it's the most important thing. So whenever someone takes a shot at it, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure I have counsel at the very least reviewing it with me to make sure that I've addressed everything properly. It is amazing to me. I'll take a look at a file when it comes in and think, oh yeah, this is straightforward. I ask for my client's files or we get into some details and I realize there's secondary or, or issues that are going on that are actually more of a problem than what comes in. And so we have to address those because the moment I turn over the original client file, the law society is going to see the issues. So we need to get ahead of the, the issue. So we've got control of the narrative. I, I know that you said, you know, what path an individual should follow if they're called, ensure that they absolutely respond and uh, to reach out. I know my bias as a criminal lawyer in relation to how I practice is if I got a call just like I would uh, speak to a client who has been getting a call from a police officer, I would want them to. I would want them to ensure that they had good advice from me. If I get a call from the law side, I'm going to be reaching out to a lawyer so I get good advice. Yeah, no, I, I, exactly. I mean, it's kind of like even though we're lawyers, we don't always have the objectivity necessary to defend ourselves. Um, or to see what errors we did make. And sometimes, you know, a lot of the times, actually, my clients are offended by the fact that a client for whom they've sacrificed hours and hours of time and energy would complain about them. And so what comes out on paper is a rant and anger, as opposed to what could simply be, uh, I did not fail to serve this client, here's what I've done, and um, the outcome was incredible in light of the fact the Crown was looking for X or Y. And I, you look, I got my complaint, I think it was my first year. And it wasn't from my client. It was from the complainant in a criminal matter. And he somehow believed that I had to get his property back. And I wrote a 14-page response. And uh, my senior associate took that 14 pages. And I think it came down to two pages. But I needed 14 pages of ranting first to get that out of my system. So can I turn to an example um, that may uh, pop up if you're a criminal lawyer and, uh, and how, uh, or what advice you would give to that individual and, and what path you'd walk with them? I just finished a trial. I, I thought I did fantastic. 
Unfortunately, the client is convicted. Uh, prior to sentencing, uh, I get a call from another lawyer. Uh, I, I, I find out that I've been uh, fired. And now uh, they're alleging that I messed up. I was absolutely incompetent during the trial. What should I do? So I'm seeing more and more ineffective assistance of counsel applications, and there is a protocol to be followed. And that protocol would be, as you've just said, stated, uh, notification by new counsel that someone will be raising ineffective assistance of counsel. Um, you're supposed to get details of the alleged ineffectiveness um, so that you can respond. I highly recommend that before you respond, you seek counsel um, because your reputation may be at issue. There are solicitor client privileged issues that arise. So you need a waiver from the client. And so while a lawyer may say to you, well, you know, Paul, you did a terrible job. The client says you never listened to him at all and you never spoke to him and you never went to the jail to see him. Um, so what do you have to say about that? And then you proceed to write out a whole affidavit, but you haven't received a waiver. You're still bound by solicitor client privilege. So you got to make sure you get a waiver from the client saying that you can discuss the case. Many clients realize when they're asked to give the waiver, well, wait a second, that first lawyer knows a whole bunch of stuff I haven't told the new lawyer. I may not want that to happen. So, you know, it's important that you, you don't react from your gut, which is anger usually, um, or fear, but you take a look at it and then you craft an affidavit if there has been a waiver that doesn't overly expose your client. So you're not gonna throw your client under the bus. You simply have to be able to answer to all the issues. So even though you may wanna tell the new lawyer that your client confessed, if that's not part of it, you may not be able to share that information. So the rules of uh, solicitor client privilege don't allow you to just sort of give everything over. You've got to give over what is necessary to answer the allegations made against you. Now, I know that allegations of incompetence can come not only from a client, but also from a referral from the bench. Um, do you suggest the same uh, um, manner in which you should proceed to protect yourself by hiring counsel? Um, and if so, what sort of thoughts uh, would you want uh, that lawyer who's being complained about to think about so that you can properly uh, be able to defend them in front of the law site? So uh, just going back on the ineffective assistance of counsel, the other party that should be notified is law pro. Um, and they may assign counsel to you on the ineffective assistance of counsel. So please um, also look at your law pro obligations on that. In regards to judicial complaints, sometimes they won't even be a judicial complaint. Sometimes it'll be a judgment issued in which they ream a lawyer for not having uh, done something. And it's it's out in the public and the law society picks it up through Can Lee. So you could find yourself, whether the judiciary complains or the judgment itself is enough to get you uh, an investigate, get you before the law society on an investigation. So, uh, you know, the law society takes judicial rulings 
um, which are in the public domain very seriously. Um, and judges, when they do complain, sometimes um, can be very adamant that something happened to the lawyer. I think it's really important for lawyers, because again, it's your reputation um, and paralegals to take a look at what is said about you. Quite often what I'm seeing is judges haven't given the lawyer the proper opportunity to respond. So they'll make a finding on an issue which the lawyer hasn't been alerted was an issue that the judge was considering. Um, those are just so, some of the cases I've, I've seen come through recently. And I think lawyers ha should be given an opportunity to respond if the bench thinks that they have been either incompetent, failed to see something, engaged in sharp practice, failed to put a, a case that the judge thinks is important before them. Um, so, uh, you know, I, whenever I see a judicial complaint, I always take a deep breath because I know it's going to be a lot of work to convince the law society that this isn't something that should remain in the public or go to a hearing. Can I sort of switch gears a little and ask you to comment on some of these real ethical issues, but there's obligations under rules to deal with them. Um, you're upset because your, you, 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 your bill has just not been paid by a senior lawyer or you're, you, you have a colleague that you see is uh, sadly uh, uh, declining because of either a mental health issue or addiction issue. Um, or, or even if somebody sadly gets stopped for drinking and driving, um, what are the different obligations that we have? So the one I see most amongst the criminal bar is uh, criminal charges, sadly. Um, and I do see a lot of drinking and driving. So if you get charged, know that you're not alone in that experience. Um, you do have an obligation under the rules of professional conduct and it's I think bylaw eight um, to report unless it's a straight summary offense. So if it's hybrid and even if the law, if the crown elects summarily, you still have to self-report. So I have seen people say, well, I was waiting for the crown to elect, they've gone summarily, I don't have to report, that's not correct you still have to report hybrid or straight indictable offenses to the law society. Um, and the law society will ask for information from you in regards to any releases, were you released from the station? Are there bail conditions? Um, they will want to know whether or not um, clients were involved. I've seen recently that on these criminal charges, where there's not a lot of information given in the self-report, the Law Society will have a risk assessment interview with the, lawyer, with the lawyer. They're not gonna ask questions about what happened, but they're going to try to determine whether there are factors that make the lawyer or the paralegal a risk to the community or to, um, or to the public. So um, criminal offenses can start getting a lot of attention very quickly, especially if there's been press about them. Um, and if you don't report and they find out about it through the media, you will be asked why you failed to report um, because you do have that obligation. So make sure, it's a question I'm asked constantly, do I have to report? Um, you know, Make that phone call, check with counsel if you're at all unsure. You asked about being stiffed 
um, by senior counsel on a bill. Um, rather than running to the law society, remembering that our reputations are the things that we are trying to protect the most and recognizing that the bar is small and people talk. Um, if I'm a young lawyer and senior counsel has stiffed me on the bill, I will seek it, my own counsel of a lawyer of equal seniority to the one that stiffed me, perhaps even a colleague of theirs, retain them, explain the situation, and try to have that lawyer go in and negotiate if my negotiations have not um, been successful. Um, I think that's the way to do it as opposed to running to the law society. Um, because as a young lawyer, you don't know, there may be something that that lawyer is going to complain about. Um, so you want to protect yourself. I think I take step one. I, I don't like to go to the law society if I don't have to. So step one, go to counsel, see if counsel can't assist you um, after you've tried to negotiate a resolution with senior counsel. Let me remind you of my third example. Uh, sadly, uh, I have a colleague who um, I believe is going downhill and suffering from either an addiction or a mental health issue. And I'm truly concerned. And I uh, reached out to try to help them. Uh, what should we do? So uh, I think your first statement of I reached out and I tried to help is the correct thing to do. Um, at times that's enough to sort of start getting, if somebody realizes someone's noticed, um, some people will start to get help and um, reminding them that the, the members assistance program is confidential and there are supports there, suggesting they see their family physician, asking if there's family supports, offering to be a mentor. Um, there are some great lawyers within our bar that have offered um, assistance that are recovering alcoholics, for example. Um, I often work with them as an added support to my clients because they know what it's like to practice criminal law and they know what the pressures are like and to know that someone's been able to survive alcoholism um, or drug addiction and, you know, regain their practices, I think is really helpful. It gives you a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, unfortunately, some addictions can be stronger than our own will. And, and it takes more than just a friend that's saying, I've got some concerns. Um, sometimes bringing in more senior members of the bar might assist in bringing it to the attention of the lawyer. Um, that sometimes won't work. If clients are being jeopardized, I can tell you quite quickly, judges and crowns are very alert uh, to substance abuse issues and or changes in our performances. Like most Crown attorneys will know what you, how you practice. And if they see a marked change, suddenly you start not showing up in court repeatedly. You miss judicial pretrials. Um, somebody notices a smell of alcohol. They're, it's going to come very quickly to the attentions of crowns and, and judges, and they will complain to the law society. Um, and we also have obligations under the rules that if we think that the that clients are being put in jeopardy due to an addiction that one of our colleagues is suffering from, reporting them to the law society, I, I, I hate doing it. It's sometimes necessary because sometimes you have to hit, you know, 
a rock bottom or get to a place where something you care about, like your practice is in jeopardy. Um, and, you know, the law society, if it's kept, if it's properly informed that you identify it as an addiction issue, um, will do a capacity investigation. That investigation is just simply to determine at this stage anyway, whether or not you're capable of practicing. It doesn't necessarily mean that they will be dealing with you in a different manner and that disciplines out of the question. Um, you're obliged to raise any capacity issues and or capacity defenses and or mental health issues. And you can seek accommodation in, in timing of responses. You can raise it with the law society. There may be repercussions. They may ask for undertakings from you. Um, I, I've used undertakings a lot in the past to avoid disciplinary hearings in order that my clients can deal with their addiction issues with some privacy and dignity. Um, the Law Society recently has advised me that they are not interested or th they were moving away from monitoring um, undertakings where we, I would bring in a, another lawyer to monitor a practice while someone's going through addiction issues and treatment. Um, I've been told that they're moving away from that and, and seeking employment type conditions. Um, I can only say that I've raised concerns that such a condition could be discriminatory against sole practitioners who are of a certain age and or because of an addiction. It's already hard to get a job in criminal law when you're young and sober. If you're 56 and have an addiction issue, who's going to hire you? Um, if I'm in a law firm and perhaps within a civil law firm, I'm more likely to be able to find shelter and employment and supervision. So I've, I have raised that with the law study. I am waiting for a response. Um, so, you know, if you have an addiction issue and you wanna know what you can do and how to deal with it and navigate those waters of the law society, reach out to counsel. Um, they can tell you how the law society is dealing with matters so that you know whether an undertaking is appropriate or not. Some great advice. Um, I know that uh, you're on the front lines uh, helping people out. Uh, what general advice or that you, can you give to lawyers out there as a precautionary statement to say, make sure you avoid this? I am seeing an increase in burnout, especially during COVID. Um, we've all been isolated. It, it is difficult. We don't have that outlet of socializing that we used to. Um, you can only do so much for others. If you are not taking care of yourself, you really truly cannot take care of your clients. Um, and, you know, I, I don't often practice what I preach here at this moment, but, you know, exercise is really important. Taking care of yourself is really important seeking support of others listening to others when they say to you you know you have not had a break um there are people that both paul and i have spoken to in the past that have urged us to always block vacation times because if you don't that time easily evaporates because you'll set a trial date in the month of july because there's nothing else in there um so please protect your time your own personal time so that you can you know have enough in you to give to others. You know, listening to you, it just reminds me of all the times when I've sought your counsel and you've been able in a calm, intelligent manner, break things down and explain things so that 
it is clear what path to follow. And that path is always with integrity. And so I thank you. And I thank you on behalf of all those people listening. Uh, it, it's been wonderful to talk to you today, Nadia. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Paul. As, you know, I think this program has always been um, a much needed um, addition to the practice of criminal law. And, and you've offered us another way to communicate with each other during the pandemic, which I think is really important. Um, I, I welcome anyone that has any questions. Um, you know, if, if you're struggling, reaching out to people like Paul, myself, um, you can always go on Canly and find other lawyers that practice at the Law Society. There's a Law Society Duty Council program run through Bill Trudell's office with a lot of great defense counsel, many of whom are members of the Criminal Defense Bar. And um, if you're ever stuck with a complaint on my website, there is a tab that has how to respond to a complaint. I think I wrote it for the Criminal Lawyers Association a long time ago, and I just left it up there. Um, it sort of takes you through complaint responding step by step. Um, but in all things related to criminal practice, you know, just feel free to reach out to people um, when you're struggling with ethical issues. And we are a generous bar. And that's why I, no matter how much law society regulatory work I do, I always start off with saying I'm a criminal lawyer because I'm, I'm proud of being a, a member of this bar. So thank you again for inviting me, Paul. And thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sethna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.